In Luke chapter 18, verse 15, we do read, Then they also brought infants to him, that is to Jesus, that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And assuredly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And so this little vignette also recorded in Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 19. And keep in mind that when a story is told to us in all three synoptic gospels, then it's like the Lord is saying, this is really important. Get this down. You see, it was customary 2,000 years ago for the parents to bring their children, their young children, and their infants to a distinguished rabbi or teacher for them to be blessed, to be prayed upon. And Jesus just got through, as you recall last time as we left off in verses 9 through 14, as he's talking about children here, he got through talking about those two who came to the Lord uh, at the temple. One was a Pharisee in his own arrogance and pride in his self-righteousness. And then the tax collector who did come in humility and dependency upon the Lord, crying out for God's mercy. Jesus said he went away justified, unlike that arrogant Pharisee. Now Jesus, as we continue the flow of Luke's gospel here, he uses these children as examples of humility because young children illustrate that. They illustrate dependency. And I believe that children love coming to Jesus. You see, he wasn't a sour, dour, gloomy, serious, overwhelming man that children were afraid of. But he was one that the children could approach. Uh, I believe that the children loved coming to Jesus because he loved them coming to him. And I just imagine that when Jesus traveling all throughout the Galilee region, and at this point in his ministry, he's in the area of Judea. He's getting ready to make his ascent up into Jerusalem. I imagine as he passes through the villages that there would be the children that would approach him. So at this time, the parents are bringing infants to him. And the apostles here, instead of being apostles, they decide that they want to be bouncers. And they're trying to keep the parents from bringing the children and infants to him. And I can imagine, oh, don't come. He's busy. Or he's had a long day. Or maybe given the implication even that those children weren't important to our Lord. And whatever the reason, their, their reasoning for keeping those parents to bring those infants to Jesus, their assessment was very, very wrong. And it wasn't the first time that the disciples had attempted to get rid of people when they wanted to come to Jesus. You might recall in the feeding of the 5,000, what was the response of the disciples when the people were there, the day is getting late. They said, send the crowds away. Send them away. Send the people away. In Matthew chapter 15, for example, you see the Canaanite woman who's crying out to Jesus because her daughter was vexed with the demon and she's crying out to, to Jesus. And they said, pipe down, get away. Uh, we need to get rid of her. And I want us to know that Jesus says to you and to me, he always says, come. Do you know that? To you who perhaps feel like, Lord, maybe you're too busy. Or maybe I'm not important enough. Or maybe you're upset and angry at me. He always says, come. And even when he desires to bring correction to us in our lives, know this 
because he loves you and he doesn't want you to continue in that wrong attitude or in that sin or in that carnality to be held in bondage to that, to be deceived by the world's philosophy and ways. He will bring that correction and he, he brings discipline to us because he cares for us. He's a loving father that cares for his children and he always wants to speak blessing and grace and encouragement and truth to you as well. Now, in Mark's narrative, it's interesting that it says here that Luke, that he called those disciples to himself. Mark gives us some more detail telling us that Jesus was very displeased with his disciples when they saw that, uh, when he saw that they were trying to keep the children from coming to him. It is uh, what we have talked about in particularly chapter 16 of Luke, that Jesus, that he is indicting those religious leaders because they were keeping people from coming to the Messiah, to, to him. And Jesus said that if you cause one of these little ones, young ones, to stumble, it'd be better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you cast into the sea. So Jesus takes this very seriously, those coming to him, and particularly the children coming to him. And in the Gospels, as you read it, you never see Jesus get angry at his disciples or upset at them because they didn't understand a parable. Or because they're arguing who's the greatest. But he's upset at them at this time because they are trying to keep these children and the parents coming to him. I think that's worth considering and pondering. Because I think it displeases the Lord when we keep people from coming to Jesus. What do you mean keep people, keep our children from coming to Jesus? Whatever that might mean. We don't have time to go to church this morning. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. We don't have time to have devotions. We don't have time to talk about the things of the Lord. You know, we don't speak truth into people's lives. You know, we don't want to get embarrassed or we don't want them to not like us, whatever it may be. Listen, what we are to do is to bring people to Jesus because he wants them to come. And here he's upset with them because they're trying to keep the children from coming to him. And so as we read this, I, I like what it tells us that, he, again, Mark giving us a little bit more detail that Jesus takes them up in his arms. And I like that because they are his children. He takes us up into his arms as his children. If you would, it's a picture of tenderness and gentleness of our Lord because he cares for us. And Jesus would say, don't forbid them to come to me for such is the kingdom of God. And then secondly, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. I think there's a couple important things here for our consideration. Not only are we to bring them, but parents, grandparents, it is our privilege to bring our children to Jesus. It is not only a privilege, but it's our responsibility to do that as well. And dads, listen, don't just picture the moms bringing their children to Jesus. But I believe it was the dads as well. And we are reminded of what Paul, as he addressed us fathers in Ephesians chapter 6, he said, fathers, that you are to bring your children up in the training and admonition of the Lord, which means that you, dad, that are here, you are to take the lead in that. And of course, mom, you're going to have an important role in that. And grandparents, of course you are as you're raising your children in the ways and admonition and training of the Lord. And we live in a day and age where parents, 
Dads, we need to ask God to help us in this most important ministry. And I know that you work hard and you have commitments and you have obligations and you can come home and you're tired. I get that. And moms, you work hard too. We have all kinds of pressures that are put on us. But as parents and grandparents, I hope we learn from what Jesus says here that we are to bring our children to him, that he desires that. And that is to be a priority, and it's of importance to him. And that we would learn from the example in the Old Testament of Job in chapter 1, perhaps the oldest book of the Bible. This upright, blameless man, Job, who had 10 kids, would get up early, and he would sacrifice a bull on behalf of his kids. That was not easy to do, to get up and to fillet a bull. And a sacrifice on behalf of his kids, he said, lest they forget the Lord and sin in their hearts. He's interceded for his kids in that way. And we have the opportunity and privilege in the morning hours, perhaps before even your kids are up, to offer that sacrifice of prayer on their behalf. Sue and I raising four kids, our kids are adults or Our youngest one is about ready to become an adult. And we pray for our kids more than ever before because they have challenges and they have decisions to make. And they're out in the world. And this world is more mixed up and messed up than ever before. And listen, if we let go and not take serious that privilege and responsibility of praying for our kids and praying with our kids and teaching and admonishing them in the ways of the Lord and in the Word of God, then guess who's going to be waiting for them? They're going to be so much more vulnerable to the world and the enemy is going to come after them. Make it a priority to bring your children to the Lord. Because if you don't, the world's going to be waiting for them and calling for them. And the enemy is going to be right there. And he is working, I believe, overtime on our children. Dads, you speak grace and encouragement into your kids Every single day. Moms, you do too. Dads, you take your daughters for a walk. And you minister to them. And you speak grace to them. And you just encourage them. And dads, you take your sons for a walk and you talk to them about growing up and being a godly man and being responsible and doing those things that honor the Lord. For all of us to spend time with our kids, to be praying with them and sharing the word of God with them. We cannot just come home and say, I'm too tired for this. I hope they just go in their room and they just pull up social media and they're on that for the next couple hours on whatever it is that they're looking at. And we've got to do better than I hope they don't get into trouble or looking at anything that isn't good for them. We've got to do better than hope. Because our kids are more depressed and more stressed than ever before because of all those things. And we need to be putting into their hearts the things of the Lord and sharing with them the love of Jesus Christ and praying with them and praying for them. You know, one of the things that we want to do here at Calvary Chapel is encourage you in that. 
And we want to pray for you. And, and that's why here at Calvary Chapel, I was just out in the hallway looking at all those kids in the children's ministry and the nursery packed out. And the kids that get up and go upstairs in the middle school, it's so wonderful, the families that are coming here with, with kids and children. And it's a blessing. And keep bringing them. There are going to be times where you feel like, I just want to be at home. I want to just sleep in. I want to bring them. I don't want to bring them Wednesday night to youth. I don't want to bring them at those times. Don't keep them from coming to Jesus. And you spend some time with them. And you pray with them, and you share with them, and you bless them in every way that you can. Parents, keep doing that, and we're going to work extremely hard, which we do, in making sure that they are hearing the Word of God at their level here at Calvary Chapel. We don't just see it as child care, but we see it as getting them grounded in the Word of God at their level and to encourage them to love the Lord. Last night, the, the high schoolers, I have... You know, just such a renewed heart for our young people because of what they face in this world that is darker and more evil and comes at them and all kinds of voices that, that come to them in and, and so many ways by push of a button. We didn't have that when I was a teenager. We didn't have those temptations that they have today. And the darkness that is out there and the confusion that is out there and the world's philosophy and ways which is so perverted. And I was reading to them about Paul as he was writing to young Timothy. Let no one despise your youth, Timothy. You be an example of faith. And Timothy, you take heed to yourself. You must continue in the scriptures that you've learned from childhood. And not on a shame of the gospel, but I know whom I have believed, Paul would write at the end of his life. And you see, it's not only knowing what they believe, that's important. You know what manner of doctrine that I've given to you. You follow that manner of doctrine, the word of God. But it's, I know whom I have believed, to encourage them in that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to have a heart for the Lord. To know him and to love him and enjoy him and to walk with him. Encourage them in that. And we want to encourage you in that as well. Not only for your own life, but for your children. So Jesus here, he, he says, don't you know, forbid them to come to me. For such is the kingdom of God. And whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, secondly, as a little child, will by no means enter it. Jesus is not saying that only kids get into the kingdom he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom as a little child, not earn it, not try to be worthy of it. He says, we are to be childlike, not childish. And again, raising four kids, they've never had any problems in receiving. They've been dependent on mom and dad. They trust in mom and dad. They knew that there would be food on the table. They knew that there would be shoes on their feet, there would be clothes on their backs, and a roof over their heads. And the Lord desires for us to come to him in simple humility and independency to trust him, to look to his provision, his forgiveness, his love, his salvation, but not only believing but enjoying. Because I believe my kids, that they enjoy being with their parents. They enjoy being with me. I enjoy being with them. And I pray that you enjoy being with your heavenly father. Enjoy your relationship with him. And so here is Jesus is talking to them. He's saying, you know, for such 
uh, is the kingdom of God and to come in childlike simplicity and dependency upon the Lord. And then in verse 18, now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you've been a believer and read the Gospels, you're probably familiar with this story of the rich young ruler. We're told in Matthew and Mark and Luke that this individual is rich. Matter of fact, Luke tells us he was very rich. In Matthew chapter 19, we're told that he is young. And here in Luke, we are told that he's a ruler, which means he's probably a ruler in the synagogue. He is everything, everything that the world would look up to and desire to be. He is young. He is wealthy. He's of influence. Matter of fact, there are some circles of the church who would really hold this guy up as an example of being healthy and wealthy and of great influence. He's got it. He is young. He is energetic, I imagine. He is a go-getter, successful at what he does. He's a young man that every parent would want their daughter to meet and to marry. But as we're going to see and continue reading, that as you know the story, that there is something that is wrong in his life. Matter of fact, Warren Worsby points out that this rich young ruler may be the only man in the Gospels who came at the feet of Jesus and went away in a worse condition than when he came. You see, Mark tells us that he came running to Jesus. He came running to Jesus and he knelt down before him. And even though he seems outwardly to have his life all in order and all together and a great future is before him in the world, something is stirring within him. His conscience is weighing heavily on him. He is confused and he cries out, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question, isn't it? Matter of fact, it's probably the most important question that a person can ask. He says, what must I do? This guy is a doer. That's fairly certain. He's successful in life. He has accomplished so much at a young age. What must I do? You see, in John's gospel earlier than this, in John chapter 6, the crowds came to Jesus and asked them, what must we do to do the works of God? And you might recall that Jesus answered and said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. You simply believe in me. And you see, as you know, that's what makes Christianity so unique. Always remember this, because there are a lot of people that perhaps you work alongside of or in your family or live next to in your neighborhood that they think this is what I've got to do to have eternal life. If I do these things, I'm a good person and my good outweighs my bad. If I just do enough, then I'll gain eternal life. I'll get God's approval. I'll be okay. I'll go to heaven. How many people do you know have that kind of mindset? Matter of fact, I think that you can stand outside of some churches and as they came out and you were to ask them, how do you have eternal life? They'll say, well, I belong to this church or I was baptized in this church or I give to the church or I'm a good parent, I'm a good citizen, whatever the case may be. This is what I have done to earn eternal life. And you see what makes Christianity is so unique in what the Word of God declares that our salvation and our eternity is not based on what we do. It's based on what He did. And always remember that. Because there will be somebody that will come along and say, oh yeah, have faith, but 
you got to also join our church or you have to be baptized or you have to worship on a certain day. And when somebody comes along and adds to the cross of what Jesus Christ did to us and says that his death on the cross is not sufficient for forgiveness of sin and for your salvation, they are wrong. Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. He did not say, is it finished? A question mark. It is finished, a period. And listen, never put a question mark where God puts a period. I've done the work. I've paid the price. And now you come in faith and receive the free gift of eternal life, of salvation, that comes as you surrender your life to Jesus Christ based on what he did in going to the cross and rising from the grave. He comes and he says, what must I do? And this man, I believe, is very sincere. He comes at Jesus' feet, calls him good teacher. He has everything that the world offers. And I just sense he's empty. He knows something is missing in his life. So Jesus begins his conversation with him. Why do you call me good? Verse 19. No one is good but one, that is God. Now, Jesus is not asking this question, you know, because he doesn't know the answer. Of course he knows the answer. He's trying to get this young man to realize what is it that you're saying because you see they never called a rabbi they never called a teacher good and the jews did in this culture at this time today we have titles you know the reverend so-and-so the most reverend uh, father the most holy father excellency all this stuff all these these titles you know sometimes i'll get mail to people that don't know me and they'll put the reverend you know jeff fix and i don't like that name there's only one to be you know, that, that title, reverend, there's only one to be revered, and that is the Lord. So we come up with these titles and, and all of this to make us sound good and, you know, holy and special and all of this. It wasn't that way back then. They didn't call rabbis good. They knew that only God was good. And Jesus is saying, listen, think about what you're saying here. He's not Jesus denying his deity. He's affirming his deity. You're addressing me good. If you're addressing me good, then you must realize that I am God because there is none good except God. So either in essence he is declaring I am God or I'm not good. You see, this totally undermines and contradicts the mentality of people that say, oh, Jesus was a good leader. He was a great philosopher, you know, a great teacher and all of this. Is he God? Oh, no, I wouldn't go that far to say, listen, he, Jesus is either God or he's not good. But you can't have it both ways. So here Jesus getting him to think, if you're saying that I am good, then you must be recognizing that I am God. But Jesus continues the conversation in verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Dare, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I kept from my youth. Jesus begins to flash across him the six commandments that deal with men's relationship with his fellow men. You see, when you read the book of Exodus and you read the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments deals with man's relationship with God. Then the next six commandments deals with man's relationship with fellow man. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, murder, bear false witness, honor your mother and father. But interesting, he left one out, didn't he? And you probably know what it is. The last one, you shall not covet. And Jesus didn't point that one out. He didn't say, well, what about this commandment? You shall not covet, you rich, young yuppie, you know. He didn't say that to him. And he could have. He could have challenged him even 
on the other commandments. What do you mean you haven't committed adultery? Have you ever lost, lusted? What do you mean you're not angry or you didn't murder? Have you ever been angry? And according to the Sermon on the Mount, if you're angry at your brother in your heart, then you're guilty. If you lust after another, you, you know, committed adultery. You committed murder if you're angry. But he didn't do that. He had every right to do that. He just simply acknowledges, yeah, I've done this from my youth. I've honored mom and dad. I haven't bore false witness or committed murder or stolen or committed adultery. And Jesus didn't directly preach at him. But what he does do, and Mark tells us that he looked at him, Jesus did, with love. He loved him. He looked deep within his heart. And Jesus knew that there was a problem. So Jesus heard these things. He said to him, verse 22, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Here's something for you. Sell everything that you have and follow me. And you see, Jesus has a way of putting his finger on things that really can dominate and control our lives. Really, that he has a way of showing us what is a priority over him. You see, Jesus gets right to the heart of this man. If he would have told him, why don't you go on a pilgrimage, he would have done it. Why don't you go to sacrifice in Jerusalem, he would have done it. Why don't you go to the feast? Why don't you go to a monastery you know, and stay for a year? He probably would have done it. But he, he says, I want you to do this. I want you to go and sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying for you and I to have eternal life. What we have to do is we have to get rid of everything to the poor, and, and that's what we need to do because then the poor will be having to get rid of everything so they can go to heaven. So that's not what Jesus is saying here. But he is challenging this man something in his life that was wrong, knowing that his riches and his possessions were actually possessing him. And Jesus was desiring to set free this rich young ruler. Simplify your life and follow me. Now possessions, as we've talked about, particularly as we went through Luke chapter 16, having money, having possessions inherently is not wrong. It's when those possessions have a priority in your life. And Jesus rebuked the religious leaders, the Pharisees in chapter 16, for their love of money. The Bible says it's a love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. You see, there are men in the scriptures that were rich and they loved the Lord. Abraham was a friend of God. He was wealthy. David was wealthy. He had a heart after God. Solomon was very wealthy and he had the wisdom of God. We know that Joseph of Arimathea, that he was wealthy. He's going to put Jesus in his tomb for three days. Jesus is going to use it. A tomb that had never been used. Joseph of Arimathea, according to John's gospel, was very rich. We're going to see in the next chapter that there's going to be a chief tax collector that's going to get saved who is very wealthy, and he's going to give away his, his goods freely because he wants to. You see, for your life, it may be something entirely different that's got a grip on your heart, that you're trusting in, that you're looking to, that's holding you back from really following after the Lord. It might be something completely different than coveting. Jesus wasn't trying to get this man to be miserable. This man asked Jesus, according to another gospel, 
when Jesus flashed those commandments, he says, well, what do I still lack? I just picture him, he's looking up at Jesus saying, what do I still lack because I'm still empty? And Jesus said, get rid of your stuff and come follow me. And he went away sorrowful. He went away sorrowful. And listen, anything, listen, anything that is a priority over the Lord in our lives, you are going to be sorrowful. You're going to be sorrowful. Because even as we are learning in Ecclesiastes, he is our hope. He's our fulfillment. He's our satisfaction. He is everything to us. So this rich young ruler, his possessions had him in bondage, were possessing his heart. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who can be saved? You've got to understand <clears throat> that these disciples and the people were taught by the rabbis and teachers that if you're wealthy, that's God's approval and that's God's blessing. Now, God does bless us with every good gift from above. But here Jesus is saying it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel, a literal camel, to go through a literal eye of a needle. And they're saying, who can be saved? And Jesus, he responds by saying that with man it's impossible. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that with man it's impossible for salvation. You see, there's another teaching, perhaps you've even heard it, I've heard it been taught before, that in Jerusalem at this time, what Jesus is talking about, that they closed the gates of the city, and when they closed the gates of the city at sunset, on the Sabbath, you know, caravans of people couldn't come in, and the camels and all of this. Only one person, as they closed the gates, would be able to go through a very small opening that's called the needle gate. So that's what some have taught. So one person get through, and if you unload all your stuff on your camel and get it down on its knees, and you push and you pull and you strive and you strain, maybe you can get that camel through the needle gate. Well, here's the thing. There was no such thing as a needle gate. Matter of fact, if you go to Jerusalem, and they've done this on our tours of Jerusalem, somebody will come up to you and say, hey, we'll show you the needle gate. If you pay us so much money, we don't go because there's no such thing as a needle gate. You see, there's a lot of people that think if I just strain and push and strive and grunt and work hard enough, I can have eternal life. With you and I, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, is it possible because he sent his son to die on the cross for you and for me? And Jesus went to that cross to die for your sins and my sins, and then he rose from the grave, and now we have eternal life that comes through him. And you see, that's why we come to the communion table today, and as just a few minutes as the communion elements are going to be handed out, I pray that you and I, that we would just marvel at the incredible work that he did so that we don't have to strive and strain and push and grunt and all this other stuff and grit our teeth, we can rest. You rest in your salvation and you enjoy the Lord. And if there's anything in your life that's having priority over the Lord, anything in your life that's pulling you away from the Lord, 
You give it up. Get rid of it. And you follow him wholeheartedly. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time in your word. We could spend so much time, Lord, talking about these things and being encouraged. But thank you for speaking to us. And my prayer is that, that right now, as we come to you, getting ready to come to the communion table, there will be time of worship, remembering what Jesus did for us on that cross, dying for our sins and rising from the grave, the work that he did on the cross. And I pray this morning, because the communion table is for the believer. If there's anyone here that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, maybe you thought you'd be okay if you're good enough. You'll never be good enough. There's only one that is good, and that is our Lord. God is good. But the rest of us, we've gone astray and we've sinned. And that's why Jesus went to the cross for you. And so I want to invite you to come to him just as the gospel has been proclaimed this morning. That you come, repent, is what the word of God says. Turn direction, turn to Jesus in dependency and coming in humility and calling out upon him for salvation. You pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me and you rose again in your life, speaking to my heart. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior and help me to know you, to love you, to walk with you, and to enjoy you all the days of my life. Thank you for hearing my prayer and thank you for doing the work for me and Lord, I do. I do want to walk with you and know you. Help me to do that as I now have this new beginning. In Jesus' name.